I think most of us would agree that success is better than failure. If we attempt something, we hope we're successful. And, and we perceive it that way because we believe that success leads to all kinds of good things and failure leads to bad things. And that's certainly true. What we sometimes miss is that success, while it, it leads to what we are hoped to happen, it also leads us down paths that we wouldn't have dreamed we needed that we we're going to walk down. Success can can breed a, a circumstances in which what we value can get lost. You see that in, in businesses, corporations all the time. I suspect when the first McDonald's restaurant opened, the owner of the restaurant knew every employee, probably knew a lot about them. I'd be stunned if the owner of McDonald's knows all the names of all the employees who work for McDonald's all around the world. There is a disconnectedness that naturally takes place when things grow and success happens. And somehow you, corporations, businesses, try to figure out a way to deal with that. As we read in the account of the early church, they've had amazing success. Awesome things have happened. Thousands and thousands of people have come to faith And it's terrific, it's exactly what they were hoping to happen, but a situation, at least one that we know of, has developed because of all that success. Because of all the good things that have happened, all the people coming to faith, the ministry that they had to widows who have no means to support themselves in that culture has gotten lost. They become so big, so many people, so many things to do, so, so many circumstances to handle, that, that taking care of some of the widows has been shoved to the edge, to the margins. And they are being missed and neglected. As we come to this, this chapter 6, we find that the situation has been brought to the attention of the disciples. And now the question is, what are they going to do about it? Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I have begun over the last few years to try my best to not take Bible stories for granted. Growing up in the church, you hear all of these stories over and over and over again, and, and, we, and sometimes we don't really think that much about them. They just become a part of the biblical culture. But I'm trying to ask myself more and more all the time, why is that story here. Of all the stories that could be told about Jesus in the Gospels, why these stories? And of all the stories that are told about the early church in the book of Acts, why these stories? Because we don't have every story about everything that happened. The writers have to be selective about what they, what they tell us. And so I'm asking myself about this story, why is this story included? Why do we know about the widows being neglected and the disciples of the church having to deal with that? If you read most commentaries and you you talk to people, a lot of times the the answer that arises is, well, it it was helping us understand the ways in which the early church was being distracted from its mission. I just read that this week. Uh very highly respected person, someone I highly respect, said about this story, this was an example of the enemy trying to distract the disciples 
from the mission of the church. Because what do disciples do? They say, we can't give up, we shouldn't give up preaching the word and, and praying. We need somebody else to do this. And the implication might be from that, what we're doing is really important. Taking care of widows, not so much. So we'll just let somebody else handle that. But when I read this story, first of all, that doesn't really sound like the kind of response that would please Jesus. But I also don't think that's exactly what's going on here. Yes, the disciples do say our calling is to preach and to pray. But that's not to say that this problem is unimportant. In fact, it is so important that the disciples say, let's find the most godly people in the church and have them take care of this. You would think if they didn't care about it, they would say, find anyone, doesn't matter, just pick somebody. Get this thing off our backs. But they don't. This is a really serious thing. Not only do they choose the most godly people they can find, they, they lay hands on them. This becomes a deeply spiritual work of the church to feed these widows. And I think that's significant. And I think the, the point of this story being included in the book of Acts is to tell us that the message, the ministry of the church was about all the needs that arise in people's lives. It is not just that we think about how do we get these people to heaven or how do we speak to their souls and we ignore everything else. It is about feeling compassion for people, period. And that means we care about people who are hungry. It means we care about the spiritual condition of the people we encounter. It means that we care about the mental condition, the emotional state of people around us. Because either we feel compassion for people or we don't. And when we see, we look at the, the ministry of Jesus, we discover that Jesus cares about the whole part of every person. And so he heals the sick. And he gives sight to the blind. And he opens up people's hearts to be transformed in their spirits and souls. And too often in the church, we segregate those things. We, we categorize them as, well, this is the most important ministry and that's secondary. But it's not. The gospel's the gospel. The good news is the good news. And God created us as holistic beings. And God cares about every part of us. And the ministry of the church is about compassion. And the ministry of compassion means that we care about people. Every part of their existence. Every part of their being. We care enough to take it as seriously as the early church does. So what does that look like for us? What does it mean to have compassion for people? I suspect it will mean that we will, be, we will be nudged to care for people who may be like us and people who may not be like us. People who are easy for us to, 
to, to care for and people who are not easy for us to care for. These widows are being neglected because they are different. Now, the, the, the issue is, and the, the, the passage tries its best to describe it, and, and scholars find the best way to try to, to flesh out what's going on here, but as best as I can tell, what they're trying to say is that you have, you have the widows who are, who are from the Judean area, from Palestine. They speak Aramaic. They are completely tied into the Hebrew way of life and thinking. And then you have widows who are from the diaspora, Hellenistic. And they, are, they speak Greek. They are influenced by Greek culture. And they even view the Jewish religion and now Christianity from a more Greek perspective as opposed to from a, a Hebrew-Palestinian perspective. I, the thing that came to my mind when I was reading about this was trying to work with people in, let's say, the year 1865, 1866, and you've got a group of people from Atlanta, Georgia, and a group of people from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And they've come together in the same place. And you're trying to help them. And they have different perspectives about this country, different perspectives about the war we just went through, different perspective about issues. And trying to bring these different perspectives together. And if you are from the north, what would be your natural inclination about who gets more of your attention? And if you're from the south, who gets more of your attention? And I think what Luke is trying to help us understand that the disciples realized we probably inadvertently have been thinking about the widows that are easier for us to connect to. And we need to stop that. It's not that we do less for them. We just need to take care of the ones who think differently from us. And there are going to be people in our lives all the time who see the world differently than we do, who think differently than we do. They may not have anything close to the same kind of mindset about God and the church and Jesus and the kingdom. But we still feel compassion for them. I think one of the ways in which we show compassion to people like widows, people who are on the margins, people who are on the fringes of society, is that we become advocates for them. We become a voice for the voiceless. I I have felt for quite some time an uneasiness about the church being involved in politics. I I think there's probably a place for that to happen, but it seems as though what typically happens when the church gets really involved in politics is that it skews our focus, and, and it starts to become about power, and it starts to become about our rights. The one thing that struck me a few years ago when I was at a, a symposium, actually at the Faith and Justice Symposium at the college, was that the one place where the church should legitimately evolve, be involved in politics is to be advocates for people who have no voice in our culture and our society. I think it's probably hard for us, generally speaking, to realize how vulnerable you feel when you're in the middle of of our culture and the way things are done and we don't understand it. People speak language, speak a a language, a vernacular that means nothing to us. I mean, we went through some of that this summer with some family health issues and 
you know, I, I spent three years working in a hospital. And as a, as a pastor, I've been in hospitals all the time. And I feel very comfortable there. But we were dealing with things that were so much bigger than us and things we'd never experienced before. And I remember sitting there trying to sort all this out, thinking to myself, I feel so vulnerable. I feel so uncertain of what the next step should be and how we should, should do it and who we contact and, and, and what do we even ask? What questions are we even supposed to ask? And it was overwhelming. And I got just a little glimpse of how a lot of people live their lives. If you didn't grow up with technology, it's hard because our world is, is focused and centered and so much runs on technology. And if it doesn't come easy to you, it, it's intimidating. And you, and you feel vulnerable. And as the church, we step in and we help people in those circumstances, but we become a voice, an advocate for people who don't have what we may have. So often, the church is accused of being self-absorbed, that we exist simply to keep the machinery of the church running. And yes, we have to, we have to do things to keep our, ourselves going and, and, to, and to continue to operate. But the goal is not we operate just to keep ourselves in business. The goal is that, that we... We do what we do in order to be an influence to people outside of us. People who maybe aren't like us. People who have different perspectives than we have. People going through different things that we may not really connect with. But we feel compassion and love. Of course, compassion like generosity, we talked about last week, is not something you can just think about and that's enough. Compassion is something you have to do. And we can feel compassion. And it's great to feel compassion. But if it doesn't move us to action, I'm not sure we've really felt the kind of compassion that we see in Jesus. My mind kept going back this week to the book of James. In chapter 2, James says, it's wonderful that you have faith, but... um, If you're not doing anything good with it, what's really the point of your faith? You're missing missing the gospel. You're missing what the kingdom is about. And that means doing action is going to cost us something. It's going to be sacrificial. Compassion is always, always involves sacrifice. It always moves us beyond what is comfortable and easy and natural. It's fascinating to me that not only do they choose these seven men... To, to run this program. But one of them, Stephen, gets so involved in the ministry of the church that he becomes the first martyr of the church. Sacrifice is always going to be a part of what we do. Compassion and sacrifice go hand in hand. Because isn't that what we see in Jesus and Isn't that the heart of the Father? I mean, really, what we're talking about here is is having the heart of God. I mean, and one of the things that worried me about about this sermon was that I I don't want you to sit there feeling guilty. You know, it's like, oh, it's one more thing I'm not doing right. That's not what I want to do at all. What I want to do is is to help us understand that, that being compassionate 
is, is simply letting Christ live in us. It's, it's simply opening our hearts to Jesus and his compassion flows through us. It's having the heart of the Father. It's bearing the image of God, our creator. God has always been concerned about compassion. It didn't start when Jesus entered the picture. You just look back at, at the, in the Old Testament, just some, some passages from places like Exodus and Leviticus. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way, my anger will blaze against you. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. I am the Lord your God. Malachi, I'll speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, who deprive foreigners living among you of justice, but these people do not fear me. Isaiah that we read earlier, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And don't hide from relatives who need your help. I love the way that's translated. I was paying attention to the other version we read. Not even close to that. This is serious now. You can't even hide from the relatives that you have that you want to get away from. What struck me about that is that sometimes, sometimes the most difficult people to feel compassion for are the people close to us. We know them so well. It's their own fault they got into this. They made bad decisions. They drive me crazy. And what does scripture tell us? Be compassionate. Have the heart of your father. As I said last week, generosity is a part of who God is. And God cannot not be generous. And compassion is the same thing. God says to Moses, I am the Lord of compassion and grace and faithfulness and mercy. It is who God is. He cannot not be compassionate. We're simply hearing the call, watching the church live out the nature and the character of God. I can... I'm continually going back to Henry Nouwen's wonderful book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. In the first couple of sections of that book, he's talking about how we are like the two sons. We're like the son who grabs his inheritance and runs and wastes it and is welcomed home. And we're like the elder son who stays home and then sits on the back porch pouting because his father did this for his brother. He said, we all need to, to understand who the Father is, and to feel his redemptive call into our lives. But that's not the end of it. I think what fascinates me the most about this book is that when he gets to that point, he says, now now the real purpose of the gospel comes into, into play here. We see it. And the real purpose is not that we are sons who have, and daughters who have been redeemed. The real purpose is that because of what God has done for us, we now become, begin to look like the Father. And we become the father to other people who are like sons and daughters. And we take on, we take on the image of the God who created us in his image.
And a large part of that is having a heart of compassion like the Father. In fact, now one says perhaps the most radical thing Jesus ever said is be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate. Maybe that's why the elder son has such a struggle with his father. He doesn't want a father like that. He doesn't want to be a father to anybody else like that. He wants a father who will take his brother to task and kick his brother out of the home and hold people accountable and be judgmental, forgetting that he needs the grace of the father just as much as his brother does. See, we, we become people of compassion because we have begun to realize how much the compassion of God has changed us. And how much God has worked in our lives and how, how grateful we are that God has been merciful and compassionate to us. And that fills us with the Spirit, enabling us to be compassionate to other people. The message of the gospel is that compassion is not limited to a particular group of people. It's not limited to a particular set of circumstances. It's not limited to one kind of action toward people. It is being compassionate toward people that hopefully, through the grace of God, draws them to the Father, as we have been. And we see the kind of miracles in the church like the early church saw in their experiences that when you get to the end of of that section in verse 7, it says, and the church continued to grow. And the most amazing thing happened. Many of the priests there in Jerusalem became obedient to the faith. I, I pondered why that was the case. And I wonder... If it's because they listened to the disciples talking about God of compassion and grace and mercy who sent Jesus. And they watched the church live out that kind of compassion to people in need. Especially toward people who were not like them. And they thought, that makes sense. I see the meshing together of what they're saying and what they're doing. And I'd like to be a part of that too. Nothing changes people's minds about the church like seeing us do what we say. Fred Craddock is one of my favorite preachers. He died a couple of years ago. But I I would walk through a blinding rainstorm miles to hear him preach. One of the best storytellers I've ever heard insightful, simple yet profound at the same time. He tells about when he was a student in college back in the 50s. And um, early 50s, late 40s. And um, one day in chapel, Rear Admiral Thornton Miller came to speak. At that time, Admiral Miller was the 
was the highest ranking chaplain in the entire military. And he, he spoke powerfully in that chapel service. And later that night, met in the dorm with a number of the guys. And they had chances to ask him questions and to hear his stories in more detail. And he talked about being a part of the D-Day invasion. And the horror of that day and the days that followed. And spending his time all of those days walking up and down the beach, taking the hands of wounded soldiers and praying for them. And going to the next soldier and taking his hand and praying for him. And the next soldier taking his hand and praying for him all up and down the beach. And one of the students said to him, Sir, you mean while the bombs were falling and the bullets were flying, you were walking up and down the beach praying with these soldiers? He said, yeah. He said, why would you do that? Because I'm a minister of the gospel. He said, yeah, but I think you you missed my point. My my question really is, didn't, didn't you stop to ask them, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you Jewish? Do you have any faith at all? So, I mean, you know, just you, you, all of them? And Craddock says, Admiral Miller stood up as tall as he had seen him. And he said, no, gentlemen, get this. If you're a minister of the gospel, there's only one question you ask. Can I help you? Can I help you? As I read this story and I think about the church, I keep asking myself, as the church of Jesus Christ, as children of a compassionate, loving Father, there's really only one question we ought to be asking. Can I help you? And as we, as we feel compassion, as we do compassionate work, as we care for people, love people, every part of their being, our prayer is that God will use us to be channels of life change for the people he brings into our lives. We can't change everyone We can't feel compassion for everyone. We can't feel compassion for every situation. But I think if we we ask God to give us eyes and hearts and minds for the people right in front of us, the people he brings into our lives, I think we we would be working for life change bigger ways than we could ever dream or imagine. My hope, my challenge to you, to me, is that perhaps the first prayer out of our mouths every morning is something like this. Lord, give me a heart of compassion for others like you have for me. 
And help me to see them. And help me to hear them. And help me to feel their pain. And help them to know the love of Christ through my compassionate life. I think it would transform us. I think it would transform us. I think it transformed the world. Father, thank you for your compassion to us. We are humbled that despite everything about who we are, your compassion never fails, never ends, never weakens. Give us that compassion. That we might be the church who is known for our love. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.